0: So, let's begin. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Now that's a very interesting story.
1: All the people that were working for Main man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Hello, welcome to episode 5 in our series that explores the history of the company synonymous with the hedonism and excess of the rock and roll scene in the early 70s. It's
0: the story of Main Man. What do you want to know about Main Man? Because I am the Main Man. I can tell you everything about Main Man.
1: Main Man was a rights management organization formed by entrepreneur and impresario Tony DeFries that helped to develop the careers of artists including Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, Nick Ronson, Mott the Hoople, Ian Hunter, Mick Ralphs, Dana Gillespie, Amanda Lear, John Mellencamp, and David Bowie. I had no loyalty to any particular style. I didn't think that I was some. Um natural born blues singer that grew up in Bromley you know I just I knew I was a writer songwriter it was Tony's vision for main man and his aggressive promotional and marketing focus that resulted in David Bowie's transformation from a struggling singer songwriter to rock megastar De managed to get RCA to put in a million dollars to promote him in America well, that's excellent doing, does not it? You know, a million dollars. With behind-the-scenes stories from those who lived and breathed the excitement of this evocative period in rock history, we're delving into the Main Man archive for a fascinating walk on the wild side. You watched David
0: become Ziggy Stardust. You know, when he did interviews, they didn't want to interview David Bowie. They wanted to interview Ziggy Stardust. The thing that he'd created That he was on stage. He had to go into interviews and be that.
1: Today we hear from Tony DeFries. He was the driving force behind Main Man. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Fire away. first met David Bowie in April 1970 when David was looking for someone to help him achieve his artistic vision. Okay.
0: The time has come, the wall was said speak of many things there are two factors
1: needed for a successful artist there's the creative side and the business side the financial freedom allows someone to focus solely on their art so before we get into your library of amazing stories about how David evolved creatively let's start with your area of expertise uh, the business side if you could explain what sort of situation David was in when you met him and why were you convinced that you were able to help him
0: When I first met David in April 70, he was desperate for fame and fortune, but he didn't really appreciate the consequences that it might bring. He and Angela had no idea how to get there. They came to see me at my law offices in Cavendish Square, looking like the Bisto kids, or two lost children in a Dickens story. And even though I was only older by by a few years, As soon as David began to describe his situation, it was immediately evident to me that we would have to literally sever all his existing contracts and get absolute control over the financial, the artistic, the commercial decisions, and all the existing or future rights, because otherwise we couldn't possibly fund his development. And we couldn't create this dedicated independent structure that would avoid the double whammy, if you like, of if you don't become famous, then you've spent a lot of money, and if you do become famous, you're going to owe somebody a lot of taxes. We needed to say, okay, right from the beginning, this is what will happen. Now, I explained to them, and they were literally open-mouthed and wide-eyed. These two little kids were like, how is that possible? I said, I can make this happen. And the reason I can make this happen is because the industry cannot lawfully compel the performance of personal services, because that is essentially involuntary servitude, which is another name for slavery. And that had long gone. And the provision of creative content is another way of saying, if you don't give me what you're thinking, then I won't let you think. But you can't stop people from thinking and creating. And if someone writes a song, you can't say, You can't put that song out, you can't publish that song because you were supposed to write it for me. That's an unenforceable contract. But the record companies and the publishing companies had never been tested in a large-scale way, other than by people like myself. So I gave David and Andrew some real examples of these previous uh, attempts and successful attempts. And I said, look, if you're willing to really commit, totally commit, not..." about it, but actually do it. You don't have to decide today, but you have to decide. You're going to let me fund, support, administer, and manage everything you do, every aspect of your career. And if you're willing to do that, this is the kind of deal we need to make. Now when I explained it to them, it wasn't the one time I explained it to them many different times on many different occasions, but it's a difficult concept and it may never have been entirely clear to them, it should have been, what was going to happen. What I suggested was that there will be expenses, there will be costs. When we've recovered all those expenses whatever's left will be shared. Whatever rights we create or recover to do that exercise will also be shared 50-50, but 50-50 after all the costs of doing the exercise have been recovered. So rather than 25% of the gross, which is what a manager would take, or 75%, which is what the publisher will take, or 90%, which is what the record company will take, you're going to end up getting 50% and ownership. And when we see the standard model of a management contract, where the manager always gets paid, if you get paid for a, live performance. You might spend more money getting there and hiring musicians and the band might not earn a penny. The manager will get his 25% of whatever the fee was. Same thing with record companies. They will agree to give you an advance to make a record. If it's a $50,000 advance and the manager takes his 25%, what's left will be what you have to make the record. If you spend more, the record company will pay for it, but they'll charge you. You won't go home with money. Your manager will go home with money. That's not what I'm offering. That manager won't fund you, he won't finance you, and he won't take any risk. He will simply collect his share, and the agent will do the same. I'm gonna guarantee that all your personal living and professional and business expenses will get paid before we share the profit. Now, we both understood that he had to succeed for me to benefit. If he didn't succeed, I was just putting money into a hole. But if he did succeed, we would share. And he is essentially taking no risk in this situation. No financial risk. Perhaps he's taking a career risk. But he had the opportunity to find out if I could do what I said before he had to say okay. Now at the time, no other manager would do this. There was no guarantee in a standard management contract that would take a risk. They wouldn't provide you with funding, they wouldn't provide you with promotion, PR, recording, financial or business services. They wouldn't try and secure your rights or control of the sound recordings or the publishing or the songwriting. They wouldn't manage your personal appearances and your concert appearances or control your publicity, films, photographs and all the other IP. At that time, I was the only manager in the world who could make or who would make this deal for an unknown artist. The only other manager who had the knowledge and skill to do this was my one-time mentor and US counterpart, Alan Klein. Alan only worked with successful established artists so he could improve their existing deals. In exchange, he took a share of the extra revenue and the rights that he created. So I said to David, look, The simplest way to make this work is you use a three-word response, very simple. For every question you get from all the people that are going to want to know what is going on, just say, talk to Tony. And I said, I suggest you start by firing your manager, Kempit, which he probably did. That's how we began. Before we met, David had tried the world of theater and the world of mime, and Lindsay Kemp, who was an excellent mime and Jean Genet who was a French writer who wrote a tremendous piece of work called The Maid when he was in prison actually in France for homosexual activity and also thieving, not just the activity, the thieving as well. They provided actual tangible guidance in terms of mime and acting but no substantial guidance in the spiritual sense of you need someone to direct you. And David had fallen in love with this girl, Hermione, who was a girl in a gay male mime troupe, which itself was a unusual. Even more unusually for David, he was totally rejected. Hermione was decidedly disinterested, and that left him crushed and defeated emotionally. He wasn't used to that sort of rejection. And this is when Angela, who was a bright, brash American girl, English and Greek Cypriot descent, she was having huge dreams of her own stardom. And she rescued David, she scooped him up, she married him, and temporarily she transferred her ambitions to his. And because he was on the rebound, she could manage this, but she had to offer to be everything David thought he wanted and role-play madly, and manage by role-playing to persuade him that they were the ideal androgynous couple, bisexual, non-conformist, and destined for greatness. She also fulfilled the roles of a willing wife, soulmate, dominatrix, best friend, constant companion, jealous lover, unfaithful lover, and earth mother. Angela met David when she had some Pressing issues of her own. Not the least of this was her ability to remain in England as an American without any special status. One solution was to marry a UK citizen. And identifying David's strong narcissistic instincts and his deeply suppressed desire for normal family life, she got pregnant and provided all the surface elements of that particular fantasy the happy lovers and the brand new baby existed side by side with the wild, bisexual, role-playing rock star. This was a heady mixture and kept David in thrall to Angela as long as she could keep the fiction alive. When he became that rock star, things began to spin out of control and led to their eventual parting.
1: So David and Angela both buy into your vision of how to take his career to the next level. But at the time, he has recording and publishing contracts. So how do you go about extricating him from those? What's your next step?
0: In order to extract David from his recording and publishing contracts, we had to convince Mercury, particularly Irwin Steinberg, who was a co-founder, and Robin McBride, who was A&R, and David Platts at Essex Music, that he was not sufficiently valuable for them to fight for and we had to persuade the other selected industry players like CBS, RCA and Chrysalis that he was special enough to become a superstar. This was possible in part because the record industry and the publishing industry were both extremely secretive, not as companies but as individuals, about who they were talking to and what they were planning and who they were signing, primarily because of the ability... Of any one person in the record company, whether it was an a man, the head of the company, a very lowly employee, somebody in a small department, learning about this possible change and basically stealing that artist and going off and starting their own record company, which did happen. And this was something that made everyone in the music publishing and recording industry suspicious of the other players. And so it was relatively simple to talk to Mercury, knowing that whatever we said to them would not become common knowledge, because they would keep it very, very quiet. And at the same time, when we went to talk to RCA, they would not, for a moment, dream of talking to somebody at Mercury and asking them, are you going to let David go? Because that would immediately let the cat out of the bag and you'd have a huge rush of people then trying to... So everybody could be kept in the box as long as you only dealt with people in the upper levels of the company. And of course the upper levels of the company didn't want you to deal with the lower level people for exactly the same reason. Those lower level people could easily go to the artist and say we can help you get out of your contract, we can help you find another contract and so on. So this meant that we could deconstruct this obscure, unfocused, vaudeville, singing, mime, folk performer, a novelty songwriter, who only had one hit single, and reconstruct Bowie, the focused, glamorous, assured alien rock superstar. But it did call for an entirely new music business strategy, a sort of cat and mouse game. David had to follow rules made by me that changed even as the events were unfolding. Mercury had an industry-standard exclusive recording contract under which he had delivered and released the first album containing Space Odyssey and had begun recording a second album which became Man Who Sold the World. They had options for many more years and many more albums. Under that contract, they paid the recording costs which were then charged against and recovered from minimal less than cents on the dollar artist royalties they had full control of the studio and recording process, owned all the rights in and to the master recordings forever. But I needed David to keep on writing. I needed to keep on rehearsing and recording so he could honor his Mercury contract. And at the same time, we could reconstruct David into Bowie and secure more control of the recording. And I plan to use this momentum from the release of This Man Who Sold the World album as a slingshot, would reinforce negativity at mercury and generate positive interest from other labels. So I didn't intend to deliver it until we had more control over artwork, release schedules, promotion, and these other items. I outlined this termination plan with mercury records to David in very broad strokes. He didn't have the background to fully understand it. When I examined his contracts and dealings with prior managers and mentors who were older men, it was apparent that he had attempted to gain control of them and how they handled his career by using physical, emotional or intellectual seduction techniques. Without any objective advice that was independent, he was really standing in his own way because he couldn't see what needed to be fixed and this was frustrating his own career. So in the early days, his ambitions were limited to some immediate personal goals. And one of these was to make an impression at the Sombrero, which was a local coffee bar that turned into a gay club on Thursday nights. David invited me to one of those nights soon after we began working together. And following his usual MO, he attempted to seduce me so that he could maintain his alpha status. And I very gently but very firmly declined. Although he never tried again, he still had this overwhelming need to be in control and it would resurface constantly in disruptive and different forms. There were many other rules to follow for David to become Bowie, stay out of his own way, let me become the objective, focused advisory needs to achieve his ambitions, keep a clear head and stay focused, accept my role as the mentor and final arbiter and work with me to shape all the aspects of his career, allow me to take charge of career decisions so that he could not be constrained by his own personal feelings when making what was essentially a career decision for an objective Bowie, not David, but an objective Bowie, a different person who he was projecting and creating and living with but didn't become. Act and look like a star, if you want to be perceived as a star. Do this at all times. Maintain a star persona, and don't leave home without it. Adopt my zero-tolerance drug policy. This means no substance abuse of any kind. I explained from previous examples and encounters how badly both parties could be affected when the manager or the performer used drugs because they could no longer rely or support each other. They couldn't be sure that the one was functioning efficiently in their best interests if that person was being swayed by the need for drugs or by taking drugs. No unauthorised press access. No interviews, personal appearances, radio, TV, film, recordings, artwork, images or photographs, unless they were approved and controlled by us, which really meant me. And all of this was designed by me based on the way that movie studios and the film industry, public relations protocols, made their movie stars famous. When you deny the public access, you create demand, and you can shape the message. And selective press and image releases, planned interviews, and rehearsed spontaneity give you a lot more control. Set lists A very, very important element for performers was to know, not just themselves as the performer, but for all the people who were engaged in making that performance as smooth and as engaging and as exciting as possible, means you need to know exactly what song is going to be performed and which song is going to follow it and what pauses there will be, and what breaks for guitar solos, what breaks for costume changes, what lighting, what cues, what shall we have a flooded stage, what should we have a empty stage, what should we have a full stage? When you do this, if you record your rehearsals and your live performances, and you analyze the lighting and the staging and the running order for every song, then you have a very, very powerful weapon And you can see in athletics, if you're going to look at a basketball team, a baseball team, a football team, rugby team, those players and those teams and those managers, they study every game and they study it again. They study their opponents' games. They study other people's strategies to make sure that they can do better. Now, nobody had done this before for a recording performing artist. By having those tapes Not visually to begin with, because it wasn't that easy at that point in time to just get out the camera and film. There was no video. Everything was actual film. So we couldn't do that. But what we could do is we could take the audio tape and review it and revise it and re-listen to it and get our staff and our technicians, not our audiences per se, but me, to say, if we did this differently, or if we did that differently, if we shift this song, if we change the mood by creating an acoustic break here, or a guitar solo here, or a costume change here, if we take the stage to black before the next thing happens, and when it happens, it's a surprising, fully lit happening. All of this will let you make a definitive, dramatic show. So if you're gonna do this, you have to also ban cameras and film and photographers and recording at all your live performances. One thing that happens when you do the ban is that you get people who never wanted to film or photograph Bowie before. Suddenly you have people coming from Japan to check out why they can't film this artist and even smuggling cameras in so they can film him. And then later on you say well let's look at the film, maybe we'll let you use it. You get Lots of photographers trying to take photographs. And if they don't ask you, but the photographs are published, you can say, what other photographs have you got? You hire your own in-house staff photographers. In our case, Mick Rock and Lee Childers. And they can take photographs, because those photographs are going to be looked at and scanned by you, and they're going to be reviewed. And you're going to decide whether any of them get released. This way you can actually create as the movie studios did very successfully, a whole narrative, a complete illusion of the star, which has very little to do with the real person. Don't let anyone get too close to the real person unless it's part of your strategy. So by September 71, I had pretty much taken care of all the essential mission-crucial or mission-critical administrative Bowie items terminating his publishing and management and recording contracts. I basically paved the way for him to explore his full potential as a writer and a performer and producer. I also made the necessary arrangements to fund, develop and secure the intellectual property produced by his creative efforts. This meant he had a level of independence and financial security that were unique in the industry and allowed him complete creative freedom for the first time in his career. And the stage was set for Bowie to become a superstar. Now, this is when the really hard, serious work of planning, designing, rehearsing, and perfecting the foundation for that began. In 1970, Hunky Dory and Changes are the beginnings of how we created Ziggy and the Spiders from Mars, Space Oddity, Man Who Sold the World, and Hunky Dory. This was all about rehearsing the first of those characters,
1: Ziggy. That is the main man, Tony DeFries, explaining how he convinced David that his management approach, which was different to anything he had experienced previously, was exactly what he needed to achieve the stardom that had eluded him up to that point. In the next episode, Tony explains more about his early relationship with David as they plotted for world domination. Please hit subscribe to make sure the next episode arrives via your chosen podcast provider, and you can also check out the other episodes in the series. And the main man website has an ever-growing collection of amazing memorabilia, including some examples from Tony's archive of documents he described in this episode. I'm Des Shaw. This is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.